0: And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us here on this, uh, this beautiful uh, broadcast that comes your way Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. We're streaming live at those times uh, at RichardDugan.com. In addition, not just those, but also Wednesday at 9 a.m. for a special edition of Tell Me Your Story. And we hope that you will join us for all of those. And again, you can listen to those at richarddugan.com. Uh, we are podcasting podcasting on soundcloud itunes TuneIn radio spotify stitcher player fm blueberry and other locations that you folks are reposting to and thank you for doing that we are also on youtube where you can watch these interviews we'll have information in the video so that you can connect with our guest and find out more about what they are up to what they're doing and uh, as i like to say continue your evolutionary process and then um, you know if you like what we're doing here and you like to be a part of it you know sometimes that's what people like to do they like to get involved in in the work that somebody's doing and we would greatly appreciate that if you would like to do that this resonates with you we uh, have a paypal and patreon account for your security as well as ours any amount is welcome and uh, we thank those who have supported us and we thank those who will thank you thank you thank you from the heart i i am grateful for any amount that comes through that helps us to keep moving forward Uh, we also ask you to take time out during the decade of perfect vision the 2020s to go within to spend some time listening to the still small voice in that quiet peaceful calm place so that you can sort of recenter yourself refocus reenergize rejuvenate and come back into the real world although there are those who say this isn't the real world uh, needless to say come back into the material world and uh, hopefully um, find your way through with a little uh, a little more clarity and a little more focus and direction so thank you for doing that as well and we are trying to do that ourselves here on tell me your story our program today uh, takes us back and interestingly enough it takes us back to uh, my old stomping grounds of Arizona, uh, certainly not uh, not my home city necessarily, but we're going to be talking with a, a very special guest today. And I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation that we are about to have. Uh, I'm I'm always concerned whenever I have somebody of our guests, educational uh, and practical background, uh, I'm afraid that I may get uh, processed in this uh, in this interview Uh, and and hopefully i can get an analysis at the end of the program as to whether or not uh, i'm stable i'm okay all is good and life is or i need help and I've often said that you can never have too much help. We, we are all in need of help. My guest today is Richard D. Lane, MD, PhD. He's a member of the graduate facility, uh, faculty, I beg your pardon, professional neuroscience. That's GIDP, a professor of psychiatry and psychology, professor of psychiatry, psychology, and neuroscience. Richard, uh, my namesake, thank you so much for joining us here on the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here with you today
0: now uh you are um with your phd you in both psychiatry and psychology Uh, obviously psychiatry allows you uh, i i don't know uh, is the biggest difference between the two that as a psychiatrist you are able to prescribe medications for people who are having um what's the i i don't know if this is the right phrase having difficulty coping with the world
1: yeah Well, so yeah, um, my training uh, involved, you know, going to medical school and becoming a physician and learning all about the body and the brain. And uh, with that background um, and with specialty training in psychiatry after medical school, you learn to diagnose serious mental illness and how to prescribe medications, but also how to do that in a safe manner, you know, depending on the person's medical condition and other, you know, uh, vulnerabilities they may have. We also learned how to do psychotherapy and I think excellent psychiatric care involves the combination of psychotherapy and uh, medication management. Mm-hmm. Um, now, within psychology, my own, there's, There is the clinical discipline of clinical psychology where people uh, learn to become psychotherapists. They don't get the same medical training, but what they do get is scientific training in um, the science of the mind and behavior. So there's overlap in the skills clinically. My own PhD in psychology was not in clinical, but was in experimental psychology. So, um, what I did in my career was I first went to college, majored in psychology. I was fascinated by it. I had trouble deciding whether to go to psychology graduate school or medical school, decided to go the physician route. But then I felt that something was missing. I really developed a passion for doing research because I really wanted to understand emotions and how they worked and how they worked in the brain and how the brain-body interactions influenced our health. So that's why I went on and got a PhD in experimental psychology, and I was among the first to do brain imaging of emotion, functional brain imaging of emotion,
0: Mm. and then went on,
1: on from there to, you know, kind of do both basic science and clinical work, and I really enjoyed the dialogue between the two.
0: Now, I took a psychology course in college, mm-hmm. junior college, where we sort of studied the, I don't know if I want to refer to them necessarily as the great philosophers per se, but, you know, people like, you know, f- you know, the ilk of Freud and Jung and, and uh, I, I'm maybe Socrates, I <laughs> go <going> way back, <laughs> those kinds of things. And um uh-huh. The other thing that I, I, and of course, the only real experience I've had in regards to psychologists and therapy has been a uh, through the uh, television series, The Bob Newhart Show, because he was a <laughs> psychologist. now how accurate that was, I don't know. I've been through a lot of personal growth and development programs in the 80s and early 90s. I actually went through a program called LifeSpring, which was sort of a part of Est. It had been it was a branch off of Est. And I went through their three levels, you know. And that was back in the early 80s, like, uh, what was it, 81, 82, 83, something like that. Uh And then there was another program that was developed in Phoenix uh, by a uh, printer who owned a company called Papago Printing. His name was George Adair, and he had established uh, the Delta Vector and Omega Vector programs for people to go through. It was a five-day intensive, uh, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. And uh, I learned an awful lot. One of the things that I learned very early on was that when I said to myself, looking around the room the very first time I was there with my wife, who she was the one that wanted to go. Now, my wife was totally blind, so she needed a guide. So I went with her, okay, just so that she would be able to get around, right? And I'm looking around, and they're going, "Ah, you can't just sit there. You have to participate. And Uh I got to looking around. I'm going, you know, boy, I wish these people would get it. And it was a few days later, I began to realize I was in the room too. So that statement, that statement applied to me as well. So I was, uh, I was um, uh, not setting, I couldn't set myself apart. But one of the things that has really struck me about this whole area of our psyche, if if that's the correct part of who we are or what we are, mm-hmm. is the fact that it, can turn on a dime sometimes, especially based upon our past. Now, you probably remember in the 80s, it was, we blame our parents. It's the reason I'm the way I am is because it's my parents' fault. My mom and my dad did this to me. Uh, In the 90s, we dealt with codependency. And as we approached the 2000s, the 21st century, we began to understand that we were interdependent. We were responsible for our lives, of course, then we hit the 2016 presidential campaign and it was victimhood all over again. It was somebody else's fault that we were the way we were. Now, and I don't want to go into that uh, politically speaking, but that seems to be like the cycle that humanity seems to go through sometimes. What are your observations in that regard? What do you think is, is that is it still ongoing or are we starting to are we starting to get it?
1: Hmm. Well, I think that um I think we are starting to get it in the sense of, uh, I think we're making advances in understanding how psychotherapy works and how it can be made to work more effectively. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that you're referring to in the you know, different eras is the extent to which, you know where does the blame lie, if you will? Uh, how, how do, I think that's a big difference between understanding where problems came from versus uh, what is maintaining them in the present. And how do you make changes so that you don't have the same maintenance factors? And how can you take responsibility for your own mental health and overcome whatever life brought you earlier uh, to have the best life possible? Um, one of the reasons we're talking today is that uh, in the past year, we published a book called neuroscience of enduring change implications for psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. And um, this book was, is an innovation because um, we're trying to make sense out of the hundreds of different psychotherapies that are out there. There are probably over 500 different psychotherapies, Wow! Um, but um, you know, there, the question is, you know, are there some fundamentals about how psychotherapy works uh, that we can identify? And I think one important new innovation is that, whereas previously, Freud, Jung, <laughs> Socrates, et cetera, you know, all they could do was introspect and, and think about things, you know, psychologically, we have the ability now to Study the brain and understand you know a lot about how the brain works and the brain is the infrastructure of the mind, right mm-hmm. And so um, what what's been possible is to say, okay, we've studied psychotherapy to see what really is important, what works in psychotherapy, but then we can now think about how that actually might be implemented in the brain and when we think about brain systems, that really helps us converge on some fundamental principles. And so um, our basic, there's a fundamental advance in neuroscience that's really relevant here. 20 years ago, uh, there was a seminal experiment in rats that proved that memories are not fixed or permanent, but they actually are updatable. Okay. And um, so the things that happened to us in the past, they happened to us, but whenever we re- retrieve a memory, it goes into what we call a labile state and becomes it becomes possible to update it or modify it with new information um, in, in the context of that labile state. And so um, when we do psychotherapy, we're trying to, I think, take advantage of that phenomenon to optimize the therapeutic benefits. And one of the things we know about memory is that um, emotion plays a very important role. We can't remember everything that happens to us. We can remember, we need to remember the things that are most important mm-hmm. and emotion is a marker for that, okay? And so um, we, we recognize that a common denominator um, in problems that people have is that we've all had difficult experiences growing up, sometimes traumatic, mm-hmm. and we, we develop ways to cope with that by putting all the pain aside. And when you spend a lot of time avoiding pain, emotional pain, that really can cause problems. And so we think that the common denominators in changing how you function is to recall those old painful memories, re- bring up all the old painful emotion, but importantly, take advantage of this reconsolidation mechanism by working with a therapist who can provide corrective experiences. The things that you're ashamed about, for example, you tell some, you keep it to yourself. You talk to a therapist and they may view you in a very compassionate, non-judgmental, loving way And it can be kind of a surprise to see that someone could actually feel that way about you when you harbor such negative feelings about yourself. We think that that updates memories or schemas in your mind, and that will really enable you to view situations going forward in a different way. Memory is not just about the past, but it's a guide to the future.
0: But at the same time, you know, you say that emotion is sort of the trigger, but i i can i can attest to and maybe this is this is something different and i have you i'll have you explain this sometimes and i live here in santa barbara so we get the marine layer rolling in every once in a while well a lot more than once in a while and um you get the what rolling in the marine layer we have fog okay okay and um as it starts to clear it reminds me of those times when my first wife and i would uh would get on a bus uh, primarily with her music group that she was a part of in, uh, in college. And uh, they would drive across and we would be staying in, in, uh, in San Diego for a few days. We'd go to SeaWorld. And when we would go to SeaWorld, the fog was just burning off. And those were some very nice times that then elicit emotions. What about that aspect of both visual as well as auditory, sensory, uh, um, olfactory, if you will, and sometimes even uh, taste, the, the four or five senses in terms of triggering memories? Is that different than what you're talking about in terms of emotion?
1: No, it's not different. It's just a good example of the, you know, close relationship between uh, memories and emotions, um, but it's the more positive side of of um, the association, if you will. Um, yeah.
0: Okay, the neuroscience of enduring change is what we're talking about today. The latest work that he, uh, our my my guest Richard D. Lang, Doctor Dan- Lang has has uh, brought to our program today to tell us the story about this particular aspect. Um, there's a wonderful line in a, and I'm I'm constantly quoting my some of my favorite musicians, John Denver, one of them, and one of his songs says, uh, "Changes somehow frighten me still." I have to smile it turns me on to think of growing old now I'm 61 years old now here in 2021 as you and I are conversing and I have to tell you that uh, I tell people you know I still have another lifetime to live I have to outlive my great grandmother who lived to be 100 so I've got another lifetime to go I have no idea what's ahead I know that there are going to be all kinds of changes and uh, there was a book that I was told I had to read at one of my jobs years ago, back in the 80s. It was called Who Moved the Cheese? And I read the book, and I took it back to my boss, and I put it on his desk, and I said, you seem to be under the misimpression, uh, uh, misimpression if you will, that I have a problem with people moving the cheese, whatever the cheese represents. So I don't have a problem with people moving the cheese, i.e., the change. I just need to know where you moved it. Just tell me where you moved it. That's all I (laughs) want to know. So we're dealing with and have for the last, I guess, 15, 17, 18 months, a major change, which I have to tell you, I was thrilled with because we were doing something different this time that we had never done before in my lifetime specifically when the influenza would roll around when I was a kid in the 60s and 70s. Uh, they kept We kept going to school. They didn't tell us to stay home. I mean, they might say, you know, if you're not feeling good, you ought to stay home. Only this time they said, stay home. And they meant it. I mean, this, this was now an edict, if you will. And they shut down air travel. And all of these different things happened. And, of course, I'm thinking, what incredible opportunities we have coming up that we don't even know exist yet. And there are a lot of people who actually did make a lot of money, not just on unemployment, you know, and those kinds of things, but they started their entrepreneurial ventures, maybe making PPE, you know, masks and, and uh, gowns and things of this nature uh, and, and other areas. And I thought, this is a great time. When we start talking about change, which as the old saying goes, is the one constant in the universe. Um, and you talk about this neuro, the neuroscience of enduring change. You're talking about, um, dealing with it, facing it, embracing it, loving it. Um, as, as George Bush once said, George Bush c jr. Said, uh, one of his speeches back, I think it was 2001, 2000, he said, bring it on, bring it on. And I say, bring it on because it's going to come whether, or, whether I want it or not. So I might as well learn how to accept it. Right.
1: Mm. Yeah. Okay. Right. So um, we're talking about um, this is a fascinating topic, um, and we're talking about several different kinds of change. Mm-hmm. You're talking about, you know, changes in your circumstances. Um, COVID, for example, radically changes what daily life is like. Or when you age, you develop a disease, or a disability of some kind, your your faculties you know, start to wane. Uh, that's also a change, right? That you have to deal with. Uh, the book about enduring change really has to do with the internal working models that we have in our own minds and brains mm-hmm. with regard to how the social world works, how the world operates, you know, in interacting with other people what do you anticipate will happen in a family interaction or in a romantic situation or at work or with a friend? You know, we have these schemas in our minds uh, based on our past experiences, right? Because what we've learned uh, about the brain, interestingly and fascinatingly, is that the brain is a predictive device, okay? It's Mm -hmm. too complicated too computationally complex to just take raw data and, you know, make sense out of it every single moment. What's much more efficient is to make a prediction based on our past experience and then update it if we can with the new sensory data. Okay. So what we're really dealing with is that having grown up in the environments that we did, we have a whole set of predictions. We have this internal working model that was very adaptive for when we were growing up, right? But then when we leave home, um, like, like for example, it's very adaptive. Let's say you grow up in an abusive home and you know parents are very demanding and it's very adaptive to become very perfectionistic, right? To try to be as good as possible, right? But then when you leave home being extremely, Perfectionistic is not such a good thing. It's a burdensome thing, right? So, what we're talking about is these internal models, these schemas, and how do we change those, right? That's what the enduring change is about. Now, um, when we encounter things like COVID or, you know, um, declines in our health, that then puts stress. On the coping mechanisms that we developed, and sometimes, you know, sometimes people are able to thrive in the face of stress, but sometimes their functioning goes down, and that's when they might want to seek out a psychotherapist and to see to what extent is this this current problem actually a manifestation of something that's been going on in many other episodes in life, and how can we change it so it doesn't keep happening again.
0: Hmm.
1: Interesting. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that, uh, and I, I do get what you're, what you're talking about. I mean, a matter of fact, um, uh, there was a, an instance that, that happened to me uh, just recently, and one of the things that I have really been trying to do is to act and not react based mm-hmm. on past, past experiences. Uh, and there are days when that's a heck of a lot easier to do than others you know because things happen can happen so fast and yeah. you don't have a time you don't have time to stop and pause and and process it in such a way as saying okay okay don't react all right because that's what you always do yeah <laughs> pause and uh-huh. formulate a plan here um, mm-hmm. i am not a i'm not a fan of drama okay i'm not a fan of confrontation now you and I, uh, off air and privately, we might vent to one another. If we were, you know, if we were close friends, I have a good friend. I've known him, I can't believe this, I've known him 50 years, okay? And we still communicate. We went to the grade school, high school and college together. And we, we vent with one another, okay? Mm-hmm. And we will say things that we would never actually do, all right? Those would be the reactions. That we're venting all right oh i would i would do this and i would do that but we know well, neither of us would actually carry out those particular actions and we're just it's, it's almost as if if we talk about it and we vent in that way it, it, it's gone it goes away you know we we don't we we know that we won't pursue that mm-hmm. uh and then we can get down to okay so let's take a look at this from a practical a logical Uh, perspective, you know, Uh, as Einstein said, uh, you cannot solve a problem with the same consciousness that created it. Hmm. Ergo, whatever challenge you face that you faced over and over again, I was bullied in school. All right. So if I got bullied today, uh, I would definitely handle it differently. Um, I refused to give one general manager at a radio station back in uh, 1999, 98 rather, 98. I refused to give him the satisfaction of quitting. So I hid out in the production room and I did my job and I did everything that I could. He treated me as if I had just killed his best friend. And the irony is he hired me as if I was his best friend, which was rather interesting. Uh, So I I said, I'm not going to quit. He's going to have to fire me. Well, they eventually did lay me off. And for those who know anything about broadcasting, when you're let go, all you get is your last paycheck. I got a major severance package which mm. told me they knew they had done wrong but the point is if that were to ha- and I did have that happen a few years later where I got called on the carpet and I just sat there and I had to keep from laughing I had to keep from, and this guy was just reaming me a new one mm. and I-, I had to keep from laughing because I knew yeah. first of all that I was only doing my job just because one of the other employees didn't like it and quit Who's a chief engineer. I actually caused a chief engineer to quit (laughs) because I was doing my job, but it was like, Oh, I, I got it. I learned the lesson, just sit. And I, you know, you know, about the open body posture where you put your feet on the floor, both feet on the floor, put your hands on your knees and you just sit there straight back and you just listen Mm. and you just listen. You don't necessarily take it in because you don't make it personal. You just listen, because you know this person is coming from their stuff. And when it was all over, I said, okay, fine. One of the things I've noticed, Richard, is that we have a real problem with these kinds of changes that we're talking about, because we don't communicate, not only internally, but externally. Uh, Case in point, the movie Batman versus Superman would have been a 15 minute movie if they'd had the conversation at the end of the movie Mm -hmm. forward to the beginning of the movie. Okay. They wouldn't have had the battle. Wouldn't have made a great movie. Would have made $0, but that's kind of the way I look at uh, what's going on in terms of our actions and reactions to change and, and what we're doing inside and whether we react or act Mm -hmm. Does that make sense.
1: Yes. I mean, you're bringing up a lot of important points. Um, So I would just touch on a couple of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is um, you talk about instances where you are inclined to react and you found ways to, you know, keep the reaction under control. Um, I think one of the things that we might be after in a uh, in a psychotherapy treatment situation is to get to the bottom of why people react as they do mm. and to aim to change how you view the situation so that you don't react in the same way. Okay. Mm. So I think that's that's the kind of, that, when we talk about enduring change, it's like shifting how you view the world and how you view yourself and therefore how you react. Okay and how you behave. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're also talking about communication, Uh, communication between people, but also I think communication within oneself. Um, And, you know, I've been a student of emotions throughout my career and emotions are really, um, if you don't know a lot about emotions, you know, they just seem to be you know problems or you know cause cause difficulties or make it difficult to think straight things of that sort but actually emotions are highly adaptive that's why we have them and they provide a kind of golden information that's specific to you about how you're doing in interaction with the environment right now with regard to your wants needs and values and you're constantly getting feedback about that. Like, for example, if you're happy, it's because something good happened. If you're sad, you lost something. Um, but those emotions are are information about your needs, right? Mm-hmm. So if you learn how to tap into your emotions and pay attention to what you're feeling, that can tell you what you need in a situation. And then you can think about a situation differently and respond to it differently.
0: Mm. Okay? hmm. That makes sense. It, it makes yeah, it makes perfect sense. It really does. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about in this regard has to do with our DNA. Now, you, you know, you're doing this study neuro, the neuroscience of enduring change. You're dealing with the brain, you're scanning it, all of these kinds of things, and you're looking for some baselines. And I get that in, in all of uh science medicine and so forth there are baselines i i get so frustrated with my uh primary care physician when he talks about the baseline for high blood pressure the baseline for uh for uh, blood sugar uh i had uh high, i had uh, type 2 diabetes as of uh july 23rd of 2020 I no longer had type two diabetes as of September 15th of 2020, and it stayed down ever since because I knew the reason why it was because of the pandemic. I mean, didn't you and people around you start eating comfort foods that are full sure. of sugar and, and carbs and carbs turn to sugar? All right. Yep. Yep. So uh, and he kept saying, oh, it's gonna be a long road, Richard, a long and he told me about the story of this one guy. Oh, yeah, he was in here. As, his number is a one. C was at 600 and something or other. Mine was 544, mind you um wow. uh, uh that day that day my blood sugar my a1c was eleven two. 11.2 11. and wow that's uh, a I lot mean, of comfort was, food what's that
1: <laughs> that's a lot of comfort that's food. a lot of
0: comfort we were buying from the middle of the grocery store not the ends like they tell you to do okay <laughs> but i told him i knew why Um, And who's to say that my blood sugar isn't normally at, let's just say, 125, 130, 135. I know the norms are between 70, I believe it is, and 170. So as long as you're inside those lines, you should be okay, you know. Same thing with high blood pressure. My highest was uh, 184 over 120. And of course my wife who's been in cardiology for decades she says you're in the stroke zone we need to go now and get this looked at and i've i've been taking i said they they checked all of the fluids and they found nothing right i said you're not it's in here i need a therapist i i need someone like you dr richard lang lane (laughs) to 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 help walk me off the ledge as it were um but When you talk about looking for the norms, which is a wonderful thing, at least we have some parameters we can start working with. But then you start dealing with individuals. And I'll go back to the whole thing with the DNA, because my understanding is the DNA is the information that has been compiled that we that we were created from, so to speak. But that includes not just the physical. It includes the mental and the emotional I would think maybe even and the spiritual what's is there a connection, have you found a connection in any way, shape or form in that regard to uh, what you have studied in the neuroscience end of enduring change and our DNA propensity or potentiality. Well. Um...
1: Genetics is not a particular, you know, area of uh, investigation or expertise on my part. But what I can say is that um, the idea that you know your genes or your destiny it ha- has really been shown not to be exactly the case. What what is what is really now well established is that there's um, the genes are always interacting with the environment, right? And so the outcome for your, for you as an individual, isn't just, you know, a function of your DNA, but it's the interaction between your DNA and your environment. And so, um, so in other words, if you, for example, have a, a sensitive temperament, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a, a a sensitive nurturing environment then you're really going to thrive right growing up mm-hmm. but if you have a very sensitive temperament and you have an insensitive environment then you're likely to not do very well okay that's a good example of how dna isn't the whole story it's, so you're saying that it's, it's a saying combination
0: that it's more nurture than nature as the as the i'm like, saying I'm, it's,
1: both. So it's both
0: it's both sure complex. it is right but you're saying that it's the nurture or environment, because to me that they would be the same thing, that really begins to shape who you are. Mm-hmm. More than That's right. the, the information, the DNA, the genes, uh, the chromosomes, et cetera, et cetera.
1: That's right. And while we can, you know, you gave the example of how we used to blame our parents. Well, you know, parents actually, did do things you know but the fact is that's not the whole story because the outcome has to do with the combination of what you brought to it and what they brought to it and then the outcome was you but it's but you know it wasn't just all them right
0: it's like what have you done for yourself lately (laughs) Uh huh. (laughs) right we're talking talking with dr richard lane Uh, he has a book called neuroscience of enduring change to me, this is is fascinating to try to understand, and it isn't always easy. I, you know, i would be the first to admit that I haven't got a clue most of the time. All I know is I'm listening to, as I mentioned at the front of the program, Richard. I'm listening a lot to to that still small voice. What can you tell me? Uh, we've we've talked about, for example, the, the the practical aspects, the physical aspects, the DNA, nature nurture. It's over. What about our intuition what about that still small voice within us or if you want to put it in more practical terms that gut feeling it's like you know that you should do this you always have a choice as we talk on this program we all always always have choice I don't care what your situation is you always have choices you just sometimes don't know what they are uh but what about that in terms of uh let's just say if you want to call it a higher power or again coming back down to brass tacks that gut gut feeling
1: yeah um well i think it goes back to what i was saying before about cultivating that ability to tune into yourself Um, i know some very successful people who really um when they're making an important decision they you know tune into their gut that's very different from only um, tuning into your gut and making your, you know, shooting from the hip and deciding at the moment, you know, based on how you feel yeah. at that instant. Okay, and we had a prominent politician in our lives who did that, but um, I think that I think that when I was talking before about how emotion provides this golden information. That emotion starts in the body. That's your gut feeling. That's your intuition, right? Mm-hmm. And to you know recognize that that is really important information, and to pay attention to it. It doesn't necessarily dictate what you're going to do, um, but it's really important information to incorporate. Now, you know, you can make lists of pros and cons in a, in a given situation. You know, should I take this job? Should I move to this city? You know, should I be with this person or not? But that gut feeling is really super important, you know, and I would give more weight to that while also considering the other things that you can logically think through.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I I am fascinated by all of this. This is really... um uh intriguing from the standpoint that as as we often uh, uh um speak of on this program as I mentioned we always have choices we just don't know what they are sometimes and uh-huh. it's for us to expose ourselves to get out into the world and listen to uh, and uh, other people and read other materials that uh, that you may even disagree with because who knows you may glean something out of there that might help you move forward in your in your forward motion as a better human being, if you will, a better person. Uh, And and that's one of the things that is very interesting. I even interviewed a gentleman who uh, I, uh, you know, uh, I know uh, of his political proclivities. We have a good conversation. We don't have any problems there. Uh, We don't agree politically. And that's okay. We get along. And that's the beautiful thing. And he's a young person. He's 23 years old. So I asked him one day, I said, have you ever read any books by people who are completely opposite or contrary even to your own personal philosophy, your own personal beliefs he says, oh yeah. Oh yeah, he mentions quite a number of different books that I haven't even read. And he said, oh yeah, I read that one a couple of times because he wants to know, he's curious. Uh, and and the, the, the interesting thing I find about people's perspectives is that, I love this saying, We both can't be right, but we could both be wrong. Now, that's not actually true, because I remember when Pat Robertson came out following the 2020 election to make his comments about the man who lost. Uh, He said that that man does not lie. Okay, he said. Based upon where he is mentally and emotionally and even psychologically, and he wasn't casting stones, mind you. He says in his world, in his world, he's telling the truth. Now, how do we we juxtapose those kinds of situations where we have individuals who uh, don't want to or can't or refuse to look at what we would consider, you and I, we might look at a situation and we would probably agree on what just happened but this third person says oh no 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 that wasn't that wasn't a, a, a riot that was that was tourists those were just mm-hmm. tourists okay and you know what i'm referring to mm-hmm. how do we how do we get across that particular barrier or challenge if you will when we're trying to act instead of react to yeah. uh, to this to this world in which we live
1: yeah well you know, you bring up um, you know important issues. Um, I think that I can relate what what you're talking about to what I've been saying previously, um, and it goes like this. Um, you know, there's this really close relationship between what we think and what we feel. And remember how I talked about how. Um, growing up, we learn to avoid certain kinds of emotional pain, right? And then those patterns persist and we steer away from things that bother us. Well, I think, you know, to take the example of, you know, the recent election, I I think, you know, and I'm speculating here, Mm -hmm. but I think it's safe to say that, you know, in the case of Donald Trump, you know, he really honestly does believe, uh, that he won because I think his, um, the feeling associated with loss is just intolerable to him. I mean, okay. So as a result, I mean, he's, he's developed a personality style that involves, you know, saying things and doing things that are emotionally acceptable and avoiding things that are unacceptable. And, you know, don't take it from me I mean it's his niece you know I guess Mary you know who's a psychologist I think has a pretty good handle on his on his mental makeup but yeah. the point is that there are certain kinds of things you know losing was just intolerable when he was growing up and he developed this personality style right the way it relates to you know our book is that if you're going to change, If you're going to change a fundamental pattern like that, you need to open up and allow the pain that you've been avoiding to be experienced, right? So in other words, he can't deal with the possibility of loss, okay? So in psychotherapy, which he's not likely to do, but psychotherapy would be possible if he were to allow himself to open up and consider what it feels like to lose, how what it was like in that environment with his dad, and how you know demanding his father was, et cetera, and to experience all the pain associated with losing, and then to have a therapist respond, you know, but you're not, that doesn't make you a bad person, you know, you mm-hmm. did the best you could, right? Yeah. Those are corrective experiences that can change and update the emotional meaning of the memory. So then going forward, you can consider, you can entertain the possibility of losing and you don't have to distort what we would consider consensual reality.
0: Right. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And it, and regardless of whether that ever happens. Okay. He is who he is. All right since mm-hmm. we've kind of brought him up and
1: oh my gosh yes, that's yes. right Go ahead.
0: and there is no judgment here mm-hmm. because each one of us is as we are okay uh regardless of what our beliefs are whether they be mm-hmm. philosophical whether they be political economic et cetera. Et cetera. And I think that that's one of the most difficult things for those who have been on the outs for the last four years, okay, mm. of that administration. Mm. Uh, that he has been wrong, okay? And they were doing everything they could to make sure everybody else saw that he was wrong. Well, but that's just it. He wasn't wrong. We just didn't understand where he was coming from. Now, I'll share this with you because I haven't shared this with others. Uh, Well, I've shared this on this program, I should say, but I haven't shared it with you. And that is this. I went through four phases from 2016, September. I got sucked into the political stuff in September of 2016. Took me six months to get unsucked. And then I went through four phases. And the first one was the most difficult but I I knew I had to go there. And that was to say, and I can say it out loud now without any problem. Thank you, teacher. We know who we're talking about for teaching me how not to behave. The next phase was I forgive you, but more importantly, I forgive myself for allowing myself to be drawn into this quagmire. Third phase, and this went over probably five or six months. Third phase was, asking this question from a very heart-centered, humanitarian, you have a right to be here, I have a right to be here position. What is it that you're so afraid of that makes you behave and speak and act the way that you do? I'm not asking you to change. Oh, God. No, mm-hmm. I'm not asking anybody to change. I just want to understand so that mm-hmm. I can put it in context in my mind and I can move on. And then the fourth one was shared by one of my guests on this program. And it was three simple words still coming from the same place as this third phase. I love you. Now those people who over 40 Saying years
1: that to yourself or to who
0: to that person as well as to myself. huh. I love you. You have a right to be here. You're a human being. You're just playing out your role. As Shakespeare said, you know, all the world is a stage and we're, but actors, Mm-hmm. And that's where we've got to come from and saying, look, I can't control you and you. I don't want you to control me. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can control me. Right. Okay? And you are going to do what you are going to do. And I have to let that happen and be OK with that. Right. OK. Now, that doesn't mean that someone might say, well, well, what are you going to do about Hitler? that's a different story because now you've got an individual who is now trying to uh, control hundreds of thousands of millions of people, wipe out millions of people. That's a whole other story that the collective population has to come together and say, uh-uh, unacceptable. This is mm-hmm. not the way we function in society. This is not the way we do it. And then su- subsequently, World War II. Uh, so what are your thoughts in that regard to whether they, somebody were to use those four f- phases that I went through or something else to begin that process of saying, look, uh, this is the way this person is. This is the way this situation is. I can only deal with how I deal with that person or situation.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one phrase in particular that caught my attention was. You know, control the control that you have over yourself versus other people. I, I totally agree that you shouldn't try to change people. You need to accept them as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but with regard to controlling yourself, um, I, what this what this book is about, what psychotherapy is about, is that you know we're we're sometimes inclined to do things because of motivations that we're not aware of. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that the end result of a successful psychotherapy and maybe the process that you went through is that you have a better understanding of yourself and it expands the range that you have to make choices and therefore, you know, control what you do, Mm. how you view yourself, how you view other people okay you can in other words you can make changes within yourself and uh, you know we think that we have a more of a handle on how such changes come about yeah
0: you know it's interesting too those things that happen in our world whether they be man-made or natural that level the playing field Uh, Natural disasters, earthquakes, monsoon, Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, tsunamis, uh, wildfires that we have here in in California, in the southwest, and so on and so forth, whatever you want to bring up, tornadoes and hurricanes and whatnot. And boy, I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter how much money you've got, how much prestige you've got, how much whatever it is you think you've got. If you're caught in that, you're just like me, and I'm just like Mm -hmm. you now. And that changes the thought process, too.
1: It really does tap into your common humanity. And that's very humbling. And that's really important to remember.
0: Very fascinating stuff. My guest is uh, Richard Lang, And we are talking about, Dr. Lang and I are talking here about uh, neuroscience of enduring change. And we are also discussing the concepts of uh, impl- the implications, I should say, Uh, for psychotherapy. uh, And I want to ask you a question in regards to that. How? I, I hear some of the statistics about how many people are in therapy. Okay. Whether it's a psychologist or psychiatrist or counselor or whoever. I'm just wondering, how does one know that? Let's just say they need therapy, that they should seek out therapy. What are some of the signs? that I might want to look at in that regard. You know, I mean, if I have a horn growing out the back of my head, I better go see a doctor. Uh, But how would I know that I need therapy?
1: Well, I think... um, So therapy can be helpful to anybody who wants it. Um, I think uh, there are a few ways of thinking about it. I mean, the most common syndromes are ones of depression, or anxiety, uh, panic. Um, also, if you've had early life trauma, you know, like abuse and neglect, that's likely to have effects. The question is, you know, how happy are you with your current life? Uh, to what extent do you feel like um, some of the problems that you have um, keep recurring? Mm-hmm. Right. And you don't know why. I would say, and that, situ- that would be a good indication to come for psychotherapy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because, uh, yeah, things may happen in your life uh, that are beyond your control, but the common denominator is you. So how are you dealing with these things? And maybe you can find ways to deal with them that are going to enable you to get through it better and enjoy yourself more
0: what about the trauma of 2020 and actually leads into 2021 i'm hearing some statistics that we are in for a tsunami of mental health issues and i have to wonder if maybe what we're experiencing across this country right now here in 2021 with the number of mass shootings that are are happening one weekend there were 15 just recent
1: yeah. no i mean talk
0: to us about the traumas of 2020 well i think
1: uh the social distancing as necessary as that was to stop the spread of the virus you know really interrupted you know uh and prevented social connections that we all need whether it be friends family loved ones um and um also uh if you're in the house you know uh with same people day in and day out, it's a little bit of a pressure cooker. Sometimes it can make you know relationships even better, but can also put strains on it. So I think that you know a vital resource for feeling good was kind of taken away. So I, there's no question that you know um, symptoms of depression, anxiety, loneliness, uh, sleep problems, they definitely increased during COVID. Okay, and I think this has a lot to do with it, not to mention the unemployment, the, uh, you know, financial anxieties, et cetera, et cetera, as well as grief associated with loss of people important to us. So, I mean, there are just so many reasons why we would have symptoms um, and distress and and hopefully, you know, things are going to get turned around now.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, well that's the hope that we have had and I think that it's beginning to uh change. Things are beginning to move in the direction opening things up. In California, June 15th uh, is supposedly a uh, uh a benchmark for us here in California. We'll see what uh Uh, happens following that Uh, I know that there are still people who were concerned about quote unquote super spreaders by the same token the number of people myself included who have been vaccinated uh is is way up uh you know I I dealt with uh, the side effects over the weekend over a weekend that that uh, uh after we had had it and it was really uh it was really quite something in that regard so um yeah we we all and we all handle it differently we all handle it differently so i know that that. we are fast approaching the end of our program here but i want to thank you so much for being a part of uh, this broadcast and the conversation here and talking about neuroscience and uh just real quickly i like to define terms usually i do it at the front end of the program but we'll put it here Uh, what is neuroscience Uh,
1: well neuroscience is a broad field uh but it really pertains to the brain and how the brain works. And, um, you know, the, again, the, I think, I think of in this context, when we're talking about psychotherapy, we are, you know, we're talking about the mind and how the mind works, but the mind is an expression of the brain, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, All of all of the senses that we have, all of the faculties that we have, memory, attention, emotion, vision, hearing, it's all happening in the brain. And so um, the reason why we're highlighting this is that our knowledge about how the brain works is really you know, expanding exponentially. There's still a lot we don't know, but the things that we are learning, for example, when it comes to memory and emotion, are really informative and really constrain and kind of uh, influence how we think about those things in a context like psychotherapy. So, um, you know, our ability to study the brain just keeps growing, and we're learning more and more. And um, I think it's uh, it's paying dividends.
0: Did you have to go through therapy in in terms of uh, your your education in? psychiatry and psychology was that part of the curriculum it's
1: it's recommended it's not required i did do that myself and um interestingly i started it um you know as an educational endeavor and uh lo and behold discovered that well there were some things to work on that you know went beyond pure intellectual curiosity mm. you know I, I think that uh I think that what's absolutely the case is, is that uh, if you're going to be an effective therapist, you really need to have had the experience of being in therapy yourself. Otherwise, you can't really know what it's like to be on the, on the receiving end of it. Mm.
0: And from a uh, more philosophical perspective, maybe I have to use the word religious perspective. What was your upbringing and how does that relate to your psychiatry and psychology? uh practices and and working with people as well as certainly teaching uh, uh all of this because we sort of kind of touched upon the intuition which a lot of people would put in that category
1: you're asking about my spiritual upbringing yes that, uh-huh um well my own personal upbringing was um that, uh you know I, my family is Jewish. I'm Jewish. Uh, my father uh, actually happened to be uh, a psychoanalyst and psychotherapist himself. And he he wasn't particularly religious. So we weren't very, you know, we weren't very devout believers in religion, but there was very devout belief in Freud and psychology uh, as a guide. And let me just say that um, I don't think that that, in retrospect, I'm not sure that that really was so smart. I think that you know, these religious practices and traditions uh, that have been around for thousands of years you know, are tried and true and they really, you know, I think uh, should be taken very, very seriously. We need to be humble when we think that you know, we've discovered possibly better ways. But um, the things that I've talked about with regard to psychotherapy um, aren't incompatible with uh, religious beliefs. I think that uh, religious beliefs can be very sustaining uh, and uh, very supportive, and can help people get through stuff. And I, and the idea of loving your neighbor, you know, as much as you love yourself or more, is, um, you know, it's it's tremendous wisdom and and it's very useful but I think it's also true that you can only do so much you know through your rational mind and making conscious choices and I and I think one thing that psychotherapy can do is kind of help you get in touch with some of the more irrational parts of yourself and harness them so that they can expand your ability to you know adapt and and respond to your current situations
0: And, and only because you brought it up. I, I feel like we're in a courtroom. Your Honor, uh, I can talk about this because he brought it up in his testimony earlier. I can address this now. Uh, <laughs> I watched a documentary uh, on the last days of World War II, specifically Germany, where Hitler knew he was losing, so he wasn't going to win the World War, but he was going to work on winning the war against the Jews to, do, uh, to annihilate all, as many as he could before it was all over and some of the people that they interviewed talked about their connect their their belief in god one uh, a woman said that at one point she's she just stopped believing and then when certain things started happening a few years later she uh and this was going back and actually it's uh more recently she finally was starting to talk to god again so it was like her faith was sort of restored. And one of the things that has, has perplexed me, and I haven't been able to yet get an answer, and I'm looking for one, and I'm, I'm actually going to find one here uh, with someone here in Santa Barbara who can and address this, because I, I honestly think this is important because it gives us a, a, a points of reference. I want to know what it is about jewelry that is, as was phrased in the documentary, poison to civilization. I I just, I don't get it.
1: What it is about what?
0: What is it about Jewry, Judaism, if you will. Uh They used the word Jewry, uh, but Judaism, that is a poison to society that the Jews have to be eliminated completely. I I have never heard the the list of the 10 things uh, that Jews represent that is so abhorrent to that group of people back there in the 1930s and 40s, uh, you know, and yet many of them weren't Aryan. They had, they were brunette. Uh, it is even said Hitler had Jewish blood, you know, yeah. that, that he denied and so forth. So I've often wondered, when we start segregating ourselves from one another, why are we doing that? What is it about that group, you know? because it doesn't make any sense to me even though i don't know what the criterion is you're a human being i'm a human being isn't that enough that we belong together
1: yeah well i think and, and i'm afraid i'm going to have to uh finish up because i'm yes. running a little bit late but um you know it's a great question and i've been thinking about this as well i can't say exactly I mean, it's not just Jewish people who are discriminated because obviously Blacks, Hispanics, people of color and minorities, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. I think what it it comes from, um, you know, we can look to our uh, evolutionary neighbors, you know, the primates, uh, and, you know, they're very, very hierarchical. Right. Mm -hmm. And in human society, we're also very hierarchical and, you know, people, you know, need to feel good about themselves. And if they feel put down or at a disadvantage, they need to somehow find a way to feel better about themselves. And so kind of, um, if you're feeling put down by outside forces, then if you put someone else down, mm. it's a mechanism for feeling better about yourself. I think that's fundamentally what it's about. Yeah, And I think it's unfortunate, Yeah, uh, but that's the way we're built. And I think the way to deal with it is to be aware of it and to take that into account.
0: Dr. Richard Lane, I know you've got to run here. If I may Uh have uh, two minutes, I'm going to ask you really quickly, three basic questions that I ask all of my guests. So I don't want to lose this opportunity and I'll make this very quick. Uh, I will share with our listeners all of the other particulars later. But the first of those three questions is who is Richard Lane?
1: (laughs) I haven't been asked that in a while. Uh, He's a former hockey player who is uh, um, fascinated by the mind and wants to help people and has uh, transformed his competitive instincts to try to do good for other people.
0: What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now?
1: I really want people to do uh, the work that I'm doing now. I, I want to help psychotherapists to um, hone hone their skills, take into account what we're learning from neuroscience and perfect their ability to help other people. And my work on emotions more generally uh, is aimed to enable people to be better able to process their emotions in order to improve their health.
0: And finally, what is your life's purpose?
1: Yeah. Um, My life's purpose at this point is to uh, capitalize on all the advantages that I've had and the education that I've had to uh, continue doing the work that I've done to help as many people as possible. And so on that note, I want to thank you for inviting me to be part of this, because this really enables me to you know, share the work I've done with other people.
0: Absolutely. And I thank you so much for giving us so much time. And I want to let our listeners know that uh, this program is here. It's Tell me your story. New paradigms for a new world. Giving you choices and knowledge of those choices. Don't make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to love.